Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And actually, no, you're not Robert Lamb. You're DJ Radio Tropism. Oh, yeah. And uh, and what's your DJ name today? Oh, it would clearly be DJ Cryptococcus. <laughs> we'll get to that later. So today we're going to be talking about radioactivity and uh, radio-friendly organisms. But uh, to start us off, I-, I wanted to take us back to something that happened a couple of weeks ago. Okay. So we... Sometimes go on Facebook Live, the live streaming media service, and uh, talk about inane garbage, movie trailers, and stuff. Like <laughs> Not that. inane garbage, important B movie uh, and sometimes non B movie trailers, and uh, discuss the ways that they tie into our discussions here on the podcast and the topics that we cover. Well, there's nothing wrong with inane <laughs> garbage. That wasn't inherently a pejorative. I mean, I love inane garbage. Right. So we went on Facebook Live and we were talking about giant crab movies, a a, a film genre that I think is severely underrealized. It has a lot of potential. There's just not enough there. The, you young aspiring filmmakers out there need to get on the giant crab movie train. Yeah, it's as easy as buying a real crab or catching one on the beach and filming it. Right. Put it in close up. Yeah. Superimposed some little people. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and one of the movies we talked about was Attack of the Crab Monsters. So this was released in 1957, directed by, as I would call him, the crud wizard, Roger <laughs> Corman. And it is a plot you've heard a million times before. Scientists go to an island in the Pacific where there has been atomic testing. And eventually they have to square off against a couple of giant, intelligent, sort of psychic crabs that project their voices into your dreams and <laughs> stuff. It's it's odd. It's a script by Charles B. Griffith, who is a regular Corman writer. He's the same guy who wrote, who wrote Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Not of This Earth, and one of my favorites, It Conquered the World. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Where Earth is attacked by an artichoke with an underbite. Yeah, and of course you end up with a long, uh, the best part of that movie is you have lengthy scenes in which Lee Van Cleef and Peter Graves, uh, discuss, uh, the, the, the philosophical, uh, right. quandaries, uh, related to, uh, alien invasion. What does freedom really mean? Yeah. So I, I, I have a special place in my heart for that film too. Anyway, in an interview, Griffith, the screenwriter of Attack of the Crab Monsters tells the story about uh, where this screenplay came from. And he says Roger Corman came to him and said, I want to make a picture called Attack of the Giant Crabs. Obviously, the name evolved a little. And then Griffith says, I asked, does it have to be atomic radiation? <laughs> and Corman responded, yes. And. You know, that's kind of the way it was in the sci-fi and horror of the 1950s. We went through the atomic age. It was uh, we, we, of course, had just had a world war that was concluded with the use of atomic weapons. And it was almost like uh, if you're Corman thinking about Griffith coming to you saying, does it have to be atomic radiation again? It's like, why are you even asking? <laughs> of course, this movie has to be about atomic radiation, making animals bigger, more powerful, sometimes more intelligent, more rampagey versions of those same animals. Well, I love what you just said, because that I mean, that's essentially what atomic power did for 
the human race, right? Yeah. Once a society acquired it. Yeah. We became this, uh, this, this thing that was more rampagey, more dangerous. Uh, B movies are always, uh, the, the initial, uh, sounding chamber for, uh, for cultural anxiety. And so it's, it, in, you can think of it as, as Oppenheimer, uh, you know, invoking his famous, uh, uh, quote from Hindu scripture and saying, you know, saying, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Imagine him speaking that into the amplifier of, of B movie, uh, culture. And what you get are all of these atomic, uh, uh, super creatures and atomic supermen spiraling out into comic book characters, etc. as this this anxiety works its way through our fiction. Now, I know you're like you're sort of joking and sort of serious, and I want to agree with you on both halves, especially <laughs> the sort of serious part. I, I totally agree that B movies are often where we work out our sort of taboo anxieties mm-hmm. and uh, and it's where the conscience of the common person comes through into the arts and entertainment. But Another fun fact I cannot leave this subject without uh, divulging is that Griffith thinks he, he says in the same interview that uh, in in some scenes in the movie, the person operating the giant crab monster prop may have been Jack Nicholson because <laughs> he was working on sets there at the time. Uh-huh. Man, that that's a great fact. That's magical to think of. Yeah. <laughs> Especially look up this crab and think it could be Jack under there. Yeah, we we got to give the. How often do you encounter that with a someone in a monster suit? Turns out to be uh, uh, an important uh, acclaimed actor later on. But then, of course, sometimes the monster itself becomes a character. Now, obviously, there are not a whole franchise of giant crab movies. Uh, the, the 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 giant crab monster is never caught on as a beloved folk hero. Right. But some giant uh, radioactive monsters do. Yeah. Uh, the best example of that would be, of course, uh, Gohidra Godzilla, uh, who continues to uh, to rampage through our, our cinematic uh, history here. Now, is it officially part of the Godzilla canon that Godzilla was created by atomic radiation? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's when you go back to the original Godzilla. That's the, the idea. Yeah. That um, uh, and, and, and it's really kind of beautiful in its own way. Right. I mean, this is where it, in the same way that all these other uh, monsters uh, managed to emerge from, you know, largely Western contemplations of the atomic age. Godzilla is a frightening manifestation of uh, of the Japanese uh, contemplation of the atomic age, and yeah. and it really shines through in that first film because that first film is is, a, is Not far campy. darker. Yeah. yeah, it's a dark film. Uh, it it just becomes campier over time as people you know, grow used to the idea of a giant rampaging lizard creature. And when the giant rampaging lizard creature becomes the hero rather than the villain, yes. <laughs> You know, I uh, I watched part of the uh, Shin Godzilla, the new Godzilla film uh, out of Japan mm-hmm. on uh, on an airplane recently, and uh, I need to sit down and watch it uh, in, 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 in you know in complete form because it seems like there are a lot of scenes of of experts sitting around tables discussing the political ramifications of combating Godzilla, uh-huh. uh, which I, I I love films like that. They take the monster or whatever the the sort of fantastical element and just really get down and start. Uh, teasing it apart with the real world uh, factors. But of course, uh, more recent, more recently, uh, for most American audiences, uh, we had this, um, this, this new treatment of Godzilla that uh, introduced uh, some additional radioactive elements. The idea that, uh, that Godzilla and his fellow 
massive unidentified terrestrial organisms or MUDOs uh, <laughs> were radiation-dependent organisms, uh, radiation-feeding leftovers from a primal terrestrial era hmm. in which there was a lot more radioactivity on the Earth and uh, organisms had evolved to depend upon it. Now, that could play into some of the science we actually discuss later in this episode. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Yes. Now, of course, there are plenty of people... Uh, who, who would argue that, well, you can't really nail Godzilla down. He's, he's, you can't throw too much science at Godzilla, even though we can't stop doing it. He's more like a scaly Zeus. Yeah, yeah. In <laughs> fact, there's a wonderful quote that I ran across. This is from, uh, film producer, uh, Shogo Tomiyama. And it was a 2004 interview with the now defunct pennyblood.com, but you can find um, archive versions of this. And he said, this is a translation, uh, I believe. Godzilla is closer to being a god. He's not just a living animal or a monster. The fact is that humans cannot control or judge the gods. They have their own will. They have their own way. In Japan, there are many gods. There is a god of destruction. He totally destroys everything, and then there is a rebirth. Something new and fresh can begin. Godzilla is closer to being that kind of god. Now, this brings us to the godzilla Euthyphro dilemma. Is the righteous righteous because it's loved by Godzilla? Or is it righteous because, <laughs> never mind. Uh, yeah, what is love by Godzilla? It is, uh, that there's an answer to that, but it changes, I well, think, from film to film. It's obviously Rampage. Yeah, I mean, it's easier to nail down Gamera. What does Gamera love? The children. Right. And, and that's why I think I'm All ultimately children. more drawn to Gamera. Okay, we should look at some other radiation eating organisms that are either powered up by radiation or, or derive their, their everyday energy from it. All right. Well, uh, Christian and I recently did an episode dealing with some of the science of the expanse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if, if you're watching that show or if you've read the first book, you know that there's this thing called the proto molecule that shows up and it's an extrasolar biolo biology reassembling system that enters the picture. And uh, it's shown that ionizing radiation is an energy source to this thing. Hmm. So I'll say no, no more about that without getting into, into spoilers. But, uh, yeah, radiation eating organisms of, of, of a sort do play into that series. Now, I see you have a note about it here. I, I know the ghouls in Fallout. Yeah. In the Fallout series, they, they get, uh, they get love from the radioactive energy. Yeah. And even, and also the, the main character, at least in the, 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 the main, you know, recent games, uh, the, the, the character that you play, uh, what the wanderer, the vault walker, or whatever the, the descriptions are that uh, they throw out for him, uh, you can pick up perks where the radiation heals you and you kind of like feed off the radiation. So this is a path you can choose to take in the game to say, I, I want to live on radiation. Yeah. I want to be able to drink radioactive water. <laughs> yeah, which one of the things I love about the recent Fallout games is there'll be these these moments where you're standing like ankle deep in maybe not full blown radioactive water, but bad water that you should not drink. Like you're standing in a sewer and you look down and you go, oh, there's an ammo clip down there. I better pick it up. But you accidentally click on the water next to the clip instead of the clip itself. And so you reach down with your hand and you get a big scoop full of the water and you drink it. And there's it a sipping sound effect, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, lo I love the idea of that happening where it's, oh, crap, I just meant to pick up the clip and I just drank radioactive water instead. Oh, I'm such such a doofus. 
So those are just a few radiation-eating, radiation-absorbing creatures to consider. Uh, but fiction is full of many examples of radioactive mutants, and uh, giant mutant animals are a big one. So we, we've talked about uh, all, um, a number of these examples before. Uh, well, you mentioned the crabs already. Uh, but it brings up another B-movie uh, icon, the director of, of Roe, one of my, my favorite films uh, from this era, The Amazing Colossal Man. Right. I haven't seen seen this one still. This is the one where uh, there is a man who gets some kind of radiation and he grows huge. And it, of course, it's directed by Bird Eye Gordon, mm-hmm. Mr. Big himself, yeah, B-I-G. Right. Uh, who mostly made movies about things getting big, about big spiders, big dinosaurs. Uh, there's one movie of his that made a great Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode called The Beginning of the End, mm-hmm. where it explores the sort of uh, downstream food ecosystem effects of radio radiation gigantism, uh, where this scientist makes some giant vegetables. But I think he I may be remembering this wrong, but I think he injects them with radiation with a needle. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I apologize if I've mischaracterized there, but that's my memory. And then some bugs eat the radioactively injected uh, fruits and vegetables or grains. And then the bugs become huge and attack Chicago. Ah. He, uh, Bird Eye Gordon must have had either a needle phobia or a needle fetish because, uh, because there are some fabulous needle scenes in, uh, The Amazing Colossal Man as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He, like, uh, they ha- bring a huge needle to yes. inject a huge man with. <laughs> uh-huh. And then he, there's a wonderful scene. It's in the trailers and all where he, uh, he picks it up and he kind of looked at Glenn Manning, the, the Amazing Colossal Man does this, picks this, this, uh, this hypodermic needle up and it's, it's regular size to him. And then he just, with, with, with expert uh, precision, he just throws it like a dart down at one of these soldiers who just uh, pricked him with it, and it just skewers him. It's a wonderful scene. One, one of cinema's finest moments. Now, in addition to these examples, you, know, you have legions of other mutant humanoids from uh, telepathic uh, nuke mutants in Beneath the Planet, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which uh, I'd love to see those guys uh, uh, explored in some of these reboots that are coming out for the Apes movies. These are the ones that worship a giant bomb. Yeah, they, yeah. they like sing hymns to the to the atomic bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They worship the atomic bomb, and they uh, they have uh, um, crazy mental powers. Uh, you also have the Chuds from Chud, the uh, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Uh-huh. Um, we've mentioned, uh, the ghouls of Fallout. You got the mutants of Total Recall. Nice. Yeah. They were, uh, they were a lot of fun. Uh, you have the mutants of the hills have eyes. Not so much fun. Not, not so fun. Pretty much in any installment of that. Uh, they, they, they are generally not that fun, but, uh, but certainly a good B movie example as well. And, uh, of course, let's not forget atomic superheroes. That is a, a huge area of, uh, of fictional exploration here. Right. You've got the Hulk. So the official Marvel approved origin blurb, I looked it up on Marvel.com <laughs> for the Hulk reads as follows. Caught in a blast of gamma radiation, brilliant scientist Bruce Banner is cursed to transform in times of stress into the living engine of destruction known as the Incredible Hulk. Ooh, that's nice. So got that straight, right? The origin story is gamma radiation, then a curse. The curse is that when he uh, gets his briefs in a twist, he changes colors, becomes huge, strong, invincible, rampagey. Mm-hmm. 
Now, obviously, this is not – I don't need to tell you, but this is not <laughs> what happens to a human who's caught in a blast of gamma radiation. Uh, we know this in theory and principle, but even if we didn't, we would know it in practice because this has literally actually happened. Uh, I want to talk about one example of a, quote, brilliant scientist caught in a blast of hard radiation, which included gamma rays, among other types of radiation. And that man was Louis Sloten, a Canadian physicist working at the United States Atomic Testing Facility at Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, shortly after the conclusion of the Second World War. So on May 21st, 1946, at about three in the afternoon, Sloten and colleagues were performing a nuclear criticality test on a core of plutonium. And the way a test like this worked is that you would take a mass of, uh, of fissile material and then bring it almost to the point of going critical by nearly covering it with a beryllium cap. Now, what would that do? Well, the reason a substance like plutonium is dangerous is that the heavy atoms inside it are unstable and they start to split apart and shoot neutrons off in every direction, releasing a lot of energy in the process. This is nuclear fission. Uh, by covering a hemisphere of fissile plutonium with this thick reflective material like beryllium, you reflect those neutrons back into the plutonium where they hit other atomic nuclei, knock them apart, producing more free neutrons, releasing more energy. And as this happens more and more, you come closer to producing a runaway criticality event. Uh, the physicist Richard Feynman, upon hearing this type of experiment described in the 40s, compared it, compared it to, quote, tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon. Mm. Now, that's because the, the dragon presumably breathes fire when it wakes up, and about the same is true of a plutonium core. Now, this beryllium cap called a tamper, it was supposed to be kept from going completely closed, from completely covering the core. As long as there was a gap through which some of the neutrons could still fly out and it wasn't completely covered, the dragon would not fully wake up. But on the day I mentioned earlier in 1946, while Sloten was performing this experiment, holding the tamper cap open with a screwdriver, an accident happened. His hand slipped, the screwdriver came out of place, and the tamper briefly fell completely over the plutonium mass, causing it to go critical. People in the room described that they saw a flash of blue light, uh, which was the secondary result of the air itself being ionized by a blast of hard radiation, and they also felt this wave of heat wash over them. So their primary radiation exposure lasted really only a split second before Sloten was able to knock the tamper off. He sort of reached out and knocked it away, and he stopped the chain reaction, but he had already, in that tiny split second, received more than enough radiation to kill him. Uh, there's a good short New Yorker article about the history of this accident, and it reports that, quote, Sloten's whole body dose was around 2100 rem of neutrons, gamma rays and X-rays. 500 rem is usually fatal for humans. Oh, wow. So th this was a, an incredibly powerful close up dose. Uh, right after the exposure, he went outside and vomited. And then the hand closest to the core that he'd been holding right up next to the plutonium turned blue, developed large blisters, uh, and he started experiencing systemic effects that developed 
for the next nine days before he died. Um, he was in continuously deteriorating health. His white cell count dropped. His temperature and pulse became erratic. He had digestive distress. According to one medical professional who was trying to explain the nature of his, his wounds, uh, his internal radiation burns, they described it as, quote, a three-dimensional sunburn. Oh. If you can imagine being sunburned on the inside. Oh, that is rough. Now, here's a really crazy fact. This was not even the first time this had happened at this lab. Just months before, a Los Alamos worker named Harry Daglian Jr. had been killed by acute radiation exposure in a similar criticality experiment. Not exactly the same. They were using some like uh, tungsten carbide bricks, I think, but by the exact same piece of plutonium, uh, which thereafter got its nickname, quote, the demon core. Oh, and of course, Sloten is not the only person to suffer death from radiation exposure. You know, victims of the atomic bombing in Japan uh, at the close of World War II tragically suffered many of the same effects. But what's sort of morbidly fascinating about the cases of Sloten and Daglian is that there's no explosion, no fire. There's no uh, conventional physical destruction, just the pure, isolated, almost instantaneous dose of hard radiation that makes every tissue in your body start to fail. There's almost a magical element to it. Yeah. Uh, in that, with it being devoid of the explosion and the sort of the, the traditional, um, um, attributes of warfare. Yeah. It does, it does have this kind of magical feel to it because you can't see the mechanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it, it kills you slowly then because now everything in your body is irreparably damaged, but you can't see exactly what happened. So I think maybe we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we can talk about radiation. We we know now, obviously, it doesn't actually make you bigger, stronger, more intelligent, at least for large, complex mammals and most other organisms. But uh, if it does kill, how does it kill? Why does it cause this problem? All right, we're back. So let's take a moment to just really talk about what radiation is. We've been, we've been, we've been talking about it. And I think most of our listeners have a, you know, a reasonable working knowledge of radiation. But I think it's, it's a, it's a good opportunity to just stop and try and boil it all down here. So it's important to note that our lives are filled with radiation. Yeah. And, and much of it is harmless and much of it is natural. Not all radiation is of the apocalyptic variety. Uh, soil and underground gases expose us to radiation, and we're also exposed to cosmic radiation from the sun and outer space. It's mostly mostly all right, mostly fine if the the doses are right, and mm. uh, and you're dealing with this this natural mode of radiation. Well, I guess it depends on your definition of fine, but you might say it's unavoidable. It's yeah, just part of being a creature. It's unavoidable. In this universe. Yeah. And with all radiation, you know, it's going to depend on the type of radiation, the dosage level, and how long you're exposed to it. Because right. obviously, radiation is coming from the sun. You can get too much sun. Yeah. And there are varying, there are varying definitions of too much sun. There's too much sun over the course of a lifetime. There's too much sun over the course of a day at the beach, right? But that's a good illustration of the different kinds of risks that are posed by radiation. For example, too much sun at one day at the beach 
you risk the sort of uh, the 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 Sloten version, the acute radiation poisoning from mm-hmm. the sun versus too much sun over a lifetime will tend to cause things like skin cancer. Right. And not enough exposure to the sun uh, can leave you with a vitamin D uh, deficiency. So, mm. you know, there's a balance in all in all things here. Uh, and, and one of the key aspects we'll, we'll get back to, too, is that just as radiation is around us, radiation has always been around us. Right. Radiation uh has been there in the background to varying degrees throughout the evolution of life on our planet. So it's not like, oh, it's not like radiation, even though radiation as this theme, as this, uh, this fear and this anxiety really arrived, uh, in the 1950s, uh, you know, and, and we see it echoed in these B movies. Radiation did not arrive on the scene then. Radiation had always been with us. Now, in terms of radiation that stems from human inventions, that's a, that's a, that's a, a different area here. So right. we're, when this, we're talking about medical procedures, we're talking about televisions, cell phones, microwave ovens. Uh, and again, it all depends on dosage, the strength, the type, the length of exposure. Electromagnetic radiation is merely uh, a stream of photons traveling in waves. So we have, uh, you know, low energy photons such as radio, uh, waves and these just that these are just waves. They behave like waves. And while, uh, uh, we also have high energy photons such as x-rays, those behave more like particles. Uh, so in this, we're getting into this, uh, idea of the electromagnetic spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, radio, microwaves, infrared, visible light, ultraviolet, x-rays, all the way up to, to gamma rays. Yeah. That's an ascending scale of the energy yeah. of, uh, of these, uh, photons and starting somewhere at the upper end of the ultraviolet spectrum. So the, the upper end of the ultraviolet, the x-rays, the gamma rays, those are the really dangerous, the ionizing types of radiation on the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. That's so, right. Uh, so ionizing that, that brings up the, the main distinction we should probably make about the different kinds of radiation. Cause as we said, we're always surrounded constantly by radiation. It makes a big difference whether that radiation is ionizing or non ionizing. Right. And you had that wonderful example earlier about the flash of blue, blue light as yeah. the, the air, uh, ionized. Right. So the radiation that was coming out of that plutonium core mm-hmm. was doing something to the, to the atoms in the air. It was making some changes to the structure of the very atoms themselves. Right. Now, these lower forms of uh, of uh, radiation, the non-ionizing variety, they don't have enough energy to ionize atoms or molecules, thus the name. They're located at the low le- low end of the electromagnetic spectrum, and uh, non-ionizing radiation sources in our life include power lines, microwaves, radio waves, infrared radiation, visible light, lasers. Although uh, considered less dangerous than ionizing radiation, uh, overexposure, of course, can cause health issues because, again, it comes down to uh, to the, the degree and uh, the length of exposure. Right. I mean, it can still non-ionizing radiation can still, for example, heat tissues, which right. can have an effect. Yeah. But ionizing radiation is uh, energy in the form of particles or waves uh and it's so high in energy that it can break chemical bonds, meaning it can change or ionize an atom that interacts with it. Uh, at a lower energy, it can strip uh, off a couple of electrons. At higher energy, it can destroy the nucleus of an atom. It can damage DNA. So this is the stuff of radioactive material, very high-voltage equipment, nuclear reactions, and stars. <laughs> mm. 
And by the way, as, as long as we're talking about uh, natural versus unnatural radiation, even though there's, you know, sometimes there's, um, you can kind of blur the lines there. On a terrestrial basis, the levels of radiation you would need uh, to cause uh, radiation sickness in really, a, you know, acute form. Uh, pretty much require human technology after a point. So naturally occurring, uh, occurring sites of radioactivity, such as, uh, for instance, if you were to travel to Ramsar, Iran. What, that's like a naturally radioactive site? Right, yeah. If you were to travel there, you would, you would encounter this, uh, you know, in this radioactive environment, but it wouldn't be enough to produce uh, anything near the high level doses required to inflict the sort of harm we've seen via the detonation of atomic weapons or accidents at nuclear power plants. Hmm. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciate that the earth is like that. Yeah. And, and this kind of, I guess, is a nod to this idea of, you know, the, the atomic age, what is invented in the atomic age, what is unleashed in the atomic age. Yeah. Um, so while while we are naturally surrounded by all kinds of radiation, while we are naturally in a universe of highly radioactive stars and things like that, mm-hmm. we're not naturally in a universe of uh, of, you know, Regular human life scale nuclear reactors and atomic weapons. Right. It, it brings some very high, uh, radiation events, uh, and, uh, and items into our local environment mm-hmm. that generally are not there. So ionizing radiation, the dangerous kind of radiation comes in a handful of main varieties. You've basically got high frequency electromagnetic radiation and then you've got radioactive particles. So let's look at the particles first. You've got alpha particles and beta particles. Alpha particles are relatively large and they're made of protons and neutrons. Right. And because you've got protons without any electrons, what does that mean? It's charged, positive charge. Uh, and this means it wants to interact with matter to break bonds and strip away electrons. That's the ionizing part. So what it can do is turn atoms in your body into other differently behaving atoms, charged ions. Uh, and alpha particles tend to shoot off of atoms when they undergo radioactive decay. Now, alpha particles can only travel a short distance. In fact, they can be stopped with just a piece of paper or even your skin. However, inhalation or ingestion of any material that gives off alpha particles, that can be dangerous. Uh, once inside your body, alpha particles can ionize your internal tissue. And this is what happens in some cases of like radioactive poisoning. Somebody is given a poison that contains a radioactive material and it's putting off alpha particles inside your body. But uh, now what about beta particles? Uh, Beta particles are fast moving electrons and they can travel and penetrate far more than alpha particles. Beta particles can be stopped or reduced by a layer of clothing or a substance like aluminum. However, some beta particles uh, have enough energy to penetrate the skin and cause damage uh, that's very similar to burns. Uh, As with alpha particles, beta particles are quite hazardous if you inhale or ingest something that releases them. Right, because yet again, they have a charge and for this reason, and they're going to interact electrically with the tissues inside your body, trying to change stuff around. Now, another type of particle radiation would be neutron radiation. And this just means a free neutron from the nucleus of an atom shooting off all by itself. And this happens during nuclear fission. Neutrons can travel a really long distance and they can penetrate deeply through many types of objects. And I've read that the best thing for stopping this material is actually something that's rich in hydrogen. For example, water, H2O. This is a good reason water makes a good radiation shield. Um, and nu- neutron radiation is a major part of what actually happened at the Los Alamos criticality accidents. When the demon core went supercritical, Lewis Sloten's body was bombarded by neutrons, and this is part of what killed him. But you might be thinking, 
thinking, wait a minute, ionizing radiation. Why would neutrons be ionizing radiation? Uh, because if you remember your atomic chemistry, neutrons don't have a charge, positive or negative. So why would they break chemical bonds and change atoms into other things that behave differently? Well, the answer is that neutrons are sort of indirect killers. They themselves don't ionize your tissues, but if a neutron is absorbed into the nucleus of an atom in your body, that atom can now be an unstable isotope. It's got too many neutrons in its, in its nucleus, so the nucleus becomes unstable, meaning it could now undergo fission and emit radiation. So neutron radiation has the power to turn normal safe materials into radioactive materials, which in turn would then emit ionizing radiation and harm you. Uh, but I guess we should now l- let's look at the the pure energy radiation like gamma rays. Yeah, gamma rays are a type of electromagnetic radiation. Gamma rays often accompany alpha and beta particles. Unlike alpha and beta particles, however, they're extremely penetrating. In fact, several inches of lead or even a few feet of concrete are necessary to stop gamma rays. Uh, they're a radiation hazard for the entire body, meaning that although they'll pass through you, your tissue is going to absorb some rays. Yeah, and then also, of course, there are X-rays, lower energy than gamma rays, but still ionizing and potentially very dangerous depending on the dose. Uh, basically, the way that X-rays and gamma rays hurt you is by introducing huge amounts of energy into the atoms in your body, which, again, breaks molecular bonds, strips electrons away from atoms, creating free charged particles that want to interact with other atoms and molecules to change them. Now, of course, in a lot of cases where you're getting a dose of hard radiation, it's not going to be just one of these things or another. You're getting a mixture of different types of radiation all coming at you simultaneously. So overexposure to ionizing radiation can cause mutations in your genes. This can cause birth defects, raise risk of cancer, and then you'll get burns, radiation sickness, etc. But in order to kill you, it would just need to damage or kill enough cells to cause a more immediate or immediate death uh, or just to cause cancer. Yeah. So for a really rough analogy, imagine a huge machine like a like a aircraft carrier or battleship that is bombarded by millions of invisible tiny pinpricks. And each of these pinpricks has a certain random chance of hitting a component within that ship and then changing it into something else, like a maybe a screw turns into a nut or a copper wire into a piece of foam. Uh, and uh, a ship might be able to survive a certain number of these magic pinpricks and still run. But a certain uh, at a certain level of exposure, you're basically guaranteed to make enough changes to the ship that it no longer functions as a machine and maybe even sinks when the hull itself fails. Now, one thing to notice is that uh, the harmful effects of radiation are based on atomic physics and chemistry. Any complex system that's made out of atoms should be somewhat vulnerable to radiation. And for this reason, it really should affect any organism, right? It shouldn't be just humans or something. All organisms are made out of atoms and molecules. No organism wants to have its atoms and molecules broken up, changed into different atoms and molecules. It's like, no, I, I need that. Uh, so the molecular structures in our bodies are the way they are for a reason that has to do with survival. Right. But but where it gets interesting is again, for the probably fifth time, it, you know, it comes down to to the the dosage level and the exposure length, right? And uh, and also varying 
uh, species, varying organisms are going to have uh, different levels of resistance to radiation as well. Exactly. So this is a concept in biology of radio resistance. Mm-hmm. Not all organisms are equally susceptible to radiation. Some are able to withstand more than others. And as we'll get into in a bit, some might even go... Uh, I don't know what you'd say, go across the line to the other side of the ledger and not just resist, but benefit. Indeed. All right. So on that note, shall we go to Chernobyl? I think we should probably travel to Chernobyl. Let's take a trip. Okay. To scenic Ukraine. (laughs) So Chernobyl is one of those... um, It's one of those places, one of those events where the the name continues to resonate. and, you know, listeners out there are going to have varying degrees of familiarity with Chernobyl, but I, I thought it would be helpful just to, to very quickly run through what, where, where Chernobyl is and, and what occurred. And now we should keep in mind that I think in the future we might want to do a whole episode oh, yes. on the science of the, the Chernobyl disaster and its many downstream effects through time because there have been a lot of uh, studies about uh, not just what happened at this nuclear meltdown, mm-hmm. uh, but, but, what happened in the decades since. Right. I mean, even the story of how it occurred is uh, is fascinating as well. Yeah. So tell me about it, Robert. All right. So when it comes to environmental disasters, uh, we're, the 1986 Chernobyl catastrophe is, is often kind of at the top of the list, or it's, it certainly has some of the uh, – it has the, the, the name value that you, you don't find with a lot of other environmental disasters. So this was, uh, this explosion spewed 50 tons of radioactive material into the air and the reactor burned for 10 days, forcing the evacuation of at least 30,000 people from the Ukrainian town of Pripyat. In the decades to follow, we have, uh, we've had continuous study pretty much of how this affected not only the local environment, but, but the broader environment. Now, when people hear meltdown in the United States, a lot of them might have the, uh, the, the U.S. point of Three Mile Island. You know, some, they know something happened there, but mm-hmm. it's not comparable. Right. So 1979's Three Mile Island incident, that was a partial nuclear meltdown. Uh, Chernobyl was a total meltdown. Um, so Russian teams chased the melted remnants of the, the, the plant's reactor core into the facility's basement. They flooded it with water to cool off the materials, keep them from, from burning down, um, to, you know, to try, to try and stop it before it could burn through the containment building and pollute the groundwater. Hmm. Next, they dumped uh, boron, clay, uh, dolomite, lead, and sand onto the burning core by helicopter to put out the fires and limit the radioactive particles that were now rising up into the atmosphere. And in the months that followed, they encased the ruined plant in a concrete shielding that's often referred to as, as the sarcophagus. Yeah. Which puts, you know, a, a suitably dark, um, uh, darker uh, 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 note on everything here. But of course, the damage was already done by that point. Um, and uh, subsequent uh, inquiries would reveal just what the damage amounted to. Uh, as far as humans were concerned, the World Health Organization puts the fatality estimates at uh, 4,000 deaths. Uh, this is a quote from World Health Organization. They said, this includes some 50 emergency workers who died of acute radiation syndrome and nine children who died of thyroid cancer and an estimate, an estimated total of, uh, th- uh, 3,940 deaths from radiation induced cancer and leukemia among the 200,000 emergency workers from 1986 to 1987, uh, 116,000 evacuees and 270,000 residents of the most contaminated areas 
uh, total about 600,000. So food contaminated with radioactive iodine was a major factor, especially with children. Radioactive iodine uh, ended up in the milk from cows who ate contaminated grasses. It's crazy. Yeah. And then the environmental impact overall, this was a major release of radionuclides that continued for 10 days and contaminated more than 200,000 square kilometers or 77,220 square miles of Europe. Most of the strontium and plutonium isotopes were deposited within 100 kilometers or 62 miles of the damaged reactor. So the the radioactive iodine luckily had a short half-life, and that's all gone now. Mm -hmm. Um, The strontium and the cesium uh, with uh, has a longer half-life of about 30 years, so that's going to remain an issue for decades. and, uh, but then this, this quote, uh, uh, comes to us from uh, World Health again. They said, although plutonium isotopes in Americium 241 will persist perhaps for thousands of years, their contribution to human exposure is low. Now this, this shows the kind of crazy way that radioactive material can behave almost kind of like a plague spreading throughout, mm-hmm. uh, except it's not like a plague because generally a plague is, uh, more contained to certain types of organisms, you know, right. it'll uh, it'll target uh, rats or birds or humans or something like that. This is almost like a you know material plague that split spreads all throughout the ecosystem, and because of the way that different organisms in the ecosystem uh, absorb materials, trap them, and then get consumed and decompose and redistribute them, this, it, it just kind of goes everywhere. Now, one quick note on the idea of giant mutants. Now, obviously, no giant animals uh, came uh, rampaging out of the the forests uh, surrounding Chernobyl. Not even giant Ukrainian crabs. No, no giant Ukrainian crabs. The U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Human Radiation Experiments, they're, they're very quick to remind us that genetic mutations due to radiation, they do not produce the visible monstrosities of science fiction. You know, it just create produces a greater frequency of the same mutations that occur continuously and spontaneously in nature. So the, the natural world does not produce radioactive giants, at least in the animal kingdom, because the realm of plants is, inter- is interesting as another matter entirely. In the, in the wake of Chernobyl uh, and other radioactive accidents, we have seen various malformations, including dwarfism, strange growths, glowing, and yes, even gigantism, especially concerning pine needles. Wow. So that's pine one, needles. Yeah, so that's one of the, the, the few areas where we can say, yes, we have seen atomic gigantism pine needles. But who's going to watch Attack of the Pine Needles, right? I would. <laughs> Dude, you think predatory animals are ruthless. Imagine predatory atomic plants. Oh, the yeah, plants yeah. have no compassion whatsoever. They don't even process the concept of cuteness. <laughs> A giant lion might want to kill you, but at least it recognizes that large eyes are cute. The pine <laughs> tree does not. All right. Well, maybe there's some potential there. You know, I would say, though, if if I was going to get killed by a killer pine tree, I would hope it was a Jeffrey pine. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the yeah. best kind of pine. Well, it, it has a, a friendly name, yeah. <laughs> uh, so despite what organisms you might see like this, surviving, resisting in environments contaminated with radiation and radioactive particles, whether or not they've got apparent mutations, you would still expect that ionizing radiation is always a net negative influence on an organism, right? Except in those rare cases, maybe where the, you know, it causes a freak mutation that provides a survival advantage. So those are going to be the minority, right? Mm-hmm. 
some radio resistant or just plain lucky organisms might survive despite the hardship of ambient radiation. But what if there were organisms like the Hulk or like the crab monsters that seem to actively benefit from the universal high energy death magic of ionizing radiation? We are going to answer that question when we get back from this break. All right, we're back. All right. So we've talked about ionizing, non-ionizing radiation. Well, ionizing radiation has always been a part of the terrestrial environment. Right. Comes from space. Yeah. And early life forms here on Earth had to uh, have considerable resistance to it in order to to survive and to advance into uh, other forms. Oh, yeah. I should mention radioactive rocks as well. Oh, yeah. Exist on Earth. So background radiation levels are much lower now than they were on the early Earth. But terrestrial life still exists in a field of radiation. Fungi in particular show a strong resistance. Uh, so you see this stuff thriving aboard space stations, adapting to extreme conditions. We've all uh, I've, we've covered this on the show before, and I imagine everyone out there has run across constant articles about the extremophile organisms in our world and yeah. how they, they force us to re-examine what life is and where life can thrive. There's a reason there are limits to how long you can spend on the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. If you go up there, they won't let you stay forever. You need to come back. And that's for your own good. Right. Uh, there are multiple reasons. I mean, some of them might have to do with like the long term effects of microgravity on the human body, which we don't fully understand yet. But a lot of it is clearly due to the known risks from exposure to ionizing radiation while you're up there outside the Earth's atmosphere. There are elevated levels of radiation in space, and you shouldn't get too much of this or it's going to hurt you. Now, as you say, there there are these microorganisms, these uh, uh, fungal microbes mm -hmm. that survive up there in the ISS for, a lo for generations, apparently, uh, in space, and they seem to be doing just fine. Yeah. So, and, and it's true. You mentioned the radio resistance of Fungi, I think generally fungi are considered the most radio resistant, uh, kingdom of life. Yeah. I hope I'm not wrong about that. I think that's generally correct. Yeah. We're up there in space, you know, sort of barely managing. Then we come back with the fungi. They're saying, get me on that generation ship. I'm ready to go. <laughs> right. Let's see some new worlds. Well, they might need to be on the generation ship if mm -hmm. we need something to eat while we're going, uh, going out there, but we'll get to that in a minute. So we're going to talk about a study by several authors, uh, one of whom is the distinguished microbiologist and immunologist Arturo Casadevall. And he, he tells this story about how years ago he was reading about uh, how robotic exploration of the Chernobyl ruins the, from the Chernobyl disaster we were just talking about, the total meltdown of the power plant. So there, there's robotic exploration of these ruins, and they revealed that something was growing on the walls of the abandoned reactor, some sort of mat of dark fungus. But this is definitely weird because this was a dangerously radioactive environment. You know, the the pinpricks, the pinpricks of uh, ionizing mm -hmm. radiation are going all over the place all the time. It'd be kind of like if you just let the demon core go critical for a while and discovered that a bunch of squirrels began nesting in the test shack. You'd want to know, what's the deal with those squirrels? Yeah, and, and please stay away from those squirrels. Yeah, it, not as bad as the pine needles, <laughs> but they might be worse than the crabs. 
So uh, one of the first things to notice about this fungus that's growing in the presence of radiation is that it's specifically dark fungus. This is an indication of the presence of the pigment melanin. Now, melanin is a natural polymer uh, pigment found in all kinds of organisms. In humans, varieties of melanin are produced by special cells known as melanocytes. And the melanin itself is responsible for providing the pigmentation of body parts like your irises, your hair and your skin. And of course, there are a couple different kinds of melanin. There are several kinds, actually, like there is the eumelanin. This is the common kind that's uh, black or brown in color. You So if your hair is dark, if you have black or brown hair, it probably has a lot of eumelanin in it. There's also pheomelanin. This is usually what's uh, seen in like the hair of people who have red hair or maybe light brown reddish hair. And in the skin, melanin is believed to play a role in the natural human relationship to radiation because scientists think that it protects our cells, especially our DNA, from damage by an everyday form of ionizing or near ionizing radiation, which is the ultraviolet or UV radiation found in sunlight. So naturally, dark objects tend to absorb more light. This is, in fact, by definition, what makes objects dark. Mm -hmm. Uh, So black or brown melanin has properties of absorbing electromagnetic radiation, including UV radiation, and dissipating it by converting it into heat. In this way, it is thought to be able to protect the nuclei of your skin cells from being constantly bombarded, damaged, and mutated by the invisible death rays of the sun. And the pigment absorbs the radiation so your genetic material doesn't have to. So melanin in that way is a natural shield against radiation. It's one of the ways that uh, organisms have evolved natural radio resistance and even our own bodies make use of it. But the role of melanin doesn't stop there. There's some evidence that melanin may play other roles in the human body and in other organisms. For example, uh, the fungal microbe Cryptococcus neoformans. Oh, yeah, that's your DJ name. Yeah, uh, yeah DJ Cryptococcus neoformans. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll have to be able to say that really fast over a beat. Yeah, with and you need to be able to say in the house at the end of it. <laughs> they need to know that not only are you here, but you are in the house and if you were playing house music, you need to be able to tell everyone that that is what they're listening to. I'm not in the house. I'm in the abandoned reactor room. I'm just telling you the rules, Joe. So Cryptococcus neoformans uh, is a fungus that's found everywhere, just pretty much everywhere in nature. It's also potentially pathogenic, causing diseases in people, especially with impaired immune function. For example, it often causes lung infections in people who have AIDS. So for some reason, it has been observed that melanin production in this fungal germ is associated with virulence. More melanin production means a more powerful germ. And it's been suggested that this is because melanin helps the fungus protect itself against the host's immune response. Hmm. So we're seeing that melanin may have a diverse role, essentially, in in different life functions and uh, for all different kinds of organisms. I mean, this is weird to remember. We're talking about a fungus here, but this is also a pigment that animals share. It's in all the kingdoms of life, which tends to... Uh, be an indicator that it's probably quite ancient in origin, that melanin goes way back, 
Now, Robert, you mentioned earlier that in previous geological eras and, you know, past life on Earth was exposed to a lot more ionizing radiation than we are on the surface of the Earth now. And uh, if you look at the role of melanin as a very ancient thing emerging very early in life on Earth, that that may uh, pl- that may sort of provide an explanation. Right. If there was a lot of radiation back then and melanin has this uh, role in protecting organisms from radiation, you can see one reason it might have emerged. Now, let's go back to the paper I mentioned earlier. So as we saw hinted. Uh, in the blasted concrete dungeon of the Chernobyl reactor room, this dark pigment uh, in some types of fungus plays an even weirder, more fascinating role, not just protecting organisms from harmful radiation, but allowing them to thrive on it. Yeah, this uh, this paper, this was a 2007 paper published in PLOS One uh, titled Ionizing Radiation Changes the Electronic Properties of Melanin and Enhances the Growth of Melanized Fungi. Right, and that was by a long list of authors, Datakova, Brian, Huang, Modell, Schweitzer, Eisen, Nozinchuk, and Cassidaval. Yeah, and they found uh, they found some uh, interesting evidence that the fungi containing the pigment melanin can utilize the ionizing radiation portion of the electromagnetic spectrum to transform radioactive energy into biological energy. And uh, the, this would be in keeping, uh, crazy enough, with the way that chlorophyll in plants converts sunlight into bioenergy. That is crazy. Now, yeah. if that's correct, it would be absolutely bizarre and fascinating that essentially a... A, 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 a cosmic dark kind of uh, parody of, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say parody. I don't mean to demean it. A, a, a fascinating, weird parallel of photosynthesis, the kind of photosynthesis we see in plants and blue-green algae and things is going on with mushrooms. But instead of regular sunlight, they're using gamma radiation, this high-energy stuff that should kill any organism. So... If this is correct, how did they determine it? Like, how did they determine that the fun- fungi were not only surviving in the presence of this, but were actively benefiting from it? Uh, so here's the basic experiment or this part of the experiment. There were multiple experiments in uh, in this study. The the basic experiment on the fungus was that uh, two species of fungus contained melanin, the Cryptococcus neoformans and the Wangiella dermatiditis. That's got a lot of. Uh, dental <laughs> consonants in it. Uh, both were placed in environments with strong ionizing radiation, more than 500 times what you'd get from standard background radiation on Earth. And then these melanized cells in radioactive conditions were found to have had, quote, higher CFUs, more dry weight biomass, and threefold greater incorporation of C14 acetate than non-irradiated melanized cells or irradiated albino mutants. Now, that's a mouthful. What did that mean? In other words, by several measures, the melanin fungus exposed to strong radiation was more biologically successful. It grew more. It did better than fungus uh, that was not irradiated or fungus that was irradiated but didn't have significant melanin in its cells. So put a pale fungus in radiation, nah, doesn't like it. Put, uh, have a regular non-irradiated fungus, you know, it does its thing. But you put one of these dark pigmented mm. funguses or fungi under radiation and it thrives. It loves it. It's a power up to it. It's food to it in a sense. 
that's what appears to be happening. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't fully confirmed, but uh, but that's what they uh, think they observed here. And to, and to further bolster this idea, they tried to uncover leads as to what the mechanism might be, right? So if you, if you find something in nature that looks very odd, one of the ways that you can really help build your case that it is that what you're seeing is really what you think it is, is, is to find out how it works, right? So they tried to uncover a possible mechanism and, uh, and the mechanism of how ionizing radiation might be converted into usable energy went like this. They found through experiment that exposure to ionizing radiation increased the electron transfer properties of melanin. Uh, again, what does that mean? Well, essentially it changed the electronic capabilities of this pigment. The best way I've seen it put into simple, understandable terms is from a 2007 article in Scientific American by David Biello, who claimed that uh, the melanin in this case, quote, acts like a step-down electric transformer. Transformers you might see, you know, turning the electricity from the power grid into something that you can use in your house. Yeah, taking something that would normally just fry the bejesus out of everything you hold dear into something that was is tame enough domesticating the 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 current for you right so what what the pigment does under this model is it's hit with incredibly high energy radiation that mm-hmm. should destroy life instead the pigment absorbs it uh through some electrical uh electrical transfer it manages to tone it down a bit into some kind of energy that can be used by the organism to sustain its life function. So some of the far-reaching effects of this study are pretty fascinating. The researchers suggest that radiation-grown fungi might one day feed human tra- uh, space travelers on That's lengthy missions. Yeah, because out in space you're exposed to a lot of ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're, say, far from sunlight... Uh, and mm-hmm. you don't want to have to use your own power on grow lamps to, to, <laughs> to, uh, grow plants in your, in your spaceship. What do you have to work with out in deep space? Well, if you could actually grow something on ionizing radiation that you could eat, that would be amazing. And what if it glowed as well? You have like glowing, <laughs> uh, fungal, uh, spheres that are lighting your environments. You can really go, go wild with some of the possibilities here. But uh, they they uh, they also uh, speculate that this could even unlock unlock the possibility uh, that mel- this is just a possibility uh, that this is not proven that melanin in human flesh might provide energy to skin cells. Now that, like you say, it's just a speculation. It would be consistent with their findings, but it's not mm-hmm. something that's proven. But really interesting. Yeah, if that were true. It would also provide an interesting twist on this old claim. I know you've heard, Robert, the idea of the sun eaters. Oh, yes. The people who – it's basically a supernatural claim. But these people claim uh, that some monks and holy people can live for years without eating food, getting all of the nourishment and energy their body needs just straight from the sunlight. Now, obviously, I I don't think that even if this were true, <laughs> that we were getting usable bioenergy through the melanin in our skin cells – I don't think it would make those claims plausible. I think that's still pretty much nonsense. But it would be a cool twist on it because even if you could get some tiny amount of usable bioenergy from the sunlight, it wouldn't come close to the amount of concentrated chemical energy you get from eating food, right? Right. For for a rough analogy, think about the electromagnetic energy harvested from solar panels versus the dense chemical energy contained in gasoline. Right. Now, it does make me think back to our episode on – 
uh, Chinese immortality, mm-hmm. uh, where we, we talked about, uh, the idea of these, uh, aged, uh, individuals, uh, living just on, uh, on dew and the wind. Right. Uh, it, it would kind of fall in line with the, with that vision of this, uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, um, ephemeral of uh, a uh, uh, life form that's uh, just just barely subsisting on uh, the the things around it. Hmm. Well, I mean it, it just makes me wonder if this were the case mm-hmm. uh that you get some usable bioenergy through your skin cells, what I would want to see is the thought experiment that explains okay, given how that works, what would the naked surface area of your body need to be <laughs> in order to replace certain amounts of food? Hmm. Like, could you live on uh, 500 calories a day if you had X amount of naked surface area and sat out in the sun all day? Like if you had uh, like a large skin flap, like a Demetrodon. Uh, yeah, exactly. Something of that nature. Or Basically a that human solar panel. Like yeah. If you had giant wings to stretch out and uh, and absorb all the light. But then you'd also be losing a lot of heat energy. I would guess, hmm. but I don't know. I do love I do love the idea of it. The, the the big thing is that this this study does force us to reevaluate life and uh, and how life not only interacts now but has just evolved in the presence of radiation. Yeah, I mean, it's weird how the stuff that seems so normal to us on Earth is maybe not normal. In fact, it's just a circumstantial byproduct of what Earth is like Mm -hmm. and that life on another planet, the same kind of biology, the same kind of relationship with energy in the universe that seems so intuitive to us might be very weird to them. Uh, I mean, what if there's a planet that that really thrives on gamma radiation? I'm not sure if that's plausible. That might not make sense. But, uh, you know, I could imagine it. You know, mm-hmm. what if they're really just confused by the idea of a whole food ecosystem that's built off the energy from sunlight, which is where everything on Earth comes from? Yeah, yeah. This is this is something that came up in the episode that uh, did recently with Christian on butter. Mm-hmm. Like you, you really break down butter. Butter comes from the sun. Everything comes from <laughs> yeah. the sun. It's yeah. all solar. Yeah. I mean, it, your steak comes from the sun. Your, 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 whatever, your milkshake comes from the sun. It, all of it is essentially solar energy that has been transformed into, uh, into something else, something mm-hmm. that you can consume. Uh, you're just, uh, you're just gobbling it up further down the food chain. Right. All right. We got to end with crazy ideas. I've okay. got one. Here's one. Uh, hazmat suits made entirely out of mold. I like it. Yeah. Like a black fungus, black fungus bodysuit to cover you up and uh, protect you when you wade into the nuclear waters. Especially if it's ra- it grows rapidly. So it's essentially like a, it's kind of like a glow stick. You just break this uh, in half and two fluid chambers uh, uh-huh. converge. And then this black mold just grows all over you. Yeah. And, and it's uh, because it's alive, it's self healing. So instead of your hazmat suit getting punctured and now mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, well. I, yeah, I'm ruined now. Uh, instead, it would it would grow back, seal itself up. Huh? That wouldn't really work, would it? No, maybe nah. not. But you know, it, it makes me think. Uh, th- think about the the various theories that have been thrown out over the years about the future of of the human species in space. 
the the basic cyborg idea that that human and must become more machine and be this the synthesis of uh, of uh, biology and technology in order to make this adaptation possible uh what if the future is is uh is, is homo sapiens becoming a symbiotic more of a symbiotic uh, organism uh and uh, and and bringing in uh, this this fungal existence That's what if the space cool. uh, you know this idea of the the living suit uh, the, what if that is the future of uh, the human race? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it goes to the idea of when we think of the cyborg, mm-hmm. it's it's humans joining with human-made artificial technology that's you know made of metal and plastic and you know, molded pieces. I, I I like the idea of the the bio cyborg, the hybrid organism. Yeah, especially if we end up with a big mushroom cap head, mm-hmm. then then you know it's 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 all worth it. Will become space lichens. Yeah, space lichens. Invasion of the space lichens. There's the next, uh, the next movie I'd like to see, along with the killer pine trees and some of the other hypothetical B movies we've discussed in this episode. Have I told you about the B movie that I, I've recently been thinking we, we've got to write and produce? Uh, what's this? Is this the, the called, Hellraiser inspired? No, no, no. Okay. It's called Planet of the Satans. Of the Satans? Of the Satans. All Satans? Yeah. Well, I mean, you got Planet of the Vampires, but so you got to go a step up. Planet of the Satans. That would be good. Yeah, that I, or a uh, planet of the Frankensteins. I would like that as well. Uh-huh. But, uh, huh, planet of the Satans. It would be kind of like everyone on the planet is a Satan. And then, yeah. Okay. Well, not the people who arrive there. Uh huh. They've got to deal with the native Satans. Ooh, what if you do a, um, a Santa Claus versus the Martians kind of thing where you have a world <laughs> where there is no Satan and they said that children need Satan without Satan. How are they to live their lives? And then they decide, well, we're going to go and we're going to steal a Satan from the planet of the Satans. And then that will be our world, Satan. And that'll put everything in balance. And then that's the origin story for life on Earth. Big spoiler at the end. Yeah. The fall of man. All right. You did it, Robert. <laughs> you lived up to the name. Yeah, that's how we do it. All right. So, hey, if you want uh, more on this topic and other topics, uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where we have all the podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, etc. Uh, we'll also include links uh, to related material on the landing page for this episode. And if you want to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, or you want to let, let us know about a topic you'd like us to do in the future, or just to say hi, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.